You're listening to the podcast Bible Companion series by author P.H. Thompson. This is a chronological Bible study going chapter by chapter, discovering Christ in all of Scripture. These are further thoughts on the book of Job. More precious than gold. 1 Peter 1, 3-9 and 18-21 The greatest ransom ever paid in gold was during the time of the conquistadors in Peru. Gold was indeed plentiful in the land of the Incas. They even called gold the sweat of the sun. One conquistador, Francisco Pizarro, was enamored with the idea of El Dorado, a mythical land of gold. The Incan king, Atahualpa, was captured by the Spaniards and held for ransom. To save his life, he boasted that if he gave the order, his people would bring enough gold to fill a room. He reached up and made a mark on the wall. The room was 17 by 22 feet. He also offered to fill a smaller adjoining room twice over with silver in the space of two months. Pizarro agreed, and soon golden goblets, ewers, salves, vases, utensils, tiles, plates, imitations of plants, animals, and Indian corn began to arrive. The value was over $15 million in gold, plus all the silver. And before it was even all collected, the Spaniards melted them down into gold ingots and divided them among the conquistadors, with one-fifth set aside for the king of Spain. Pizarro went back on his word, and fearing an insurrection by the Incans against the Spaniards, he charged Atahualpa. He held a kangaroo court and sentenced him to be burned. At the last minute, the Roman Catholic priest convinced Atahualpa to be baptized as a Christian, or Roman Catholic, to avoid being burned. He agreed and was garroted instead. It was later proven that no such insurrection had been planned. Gold has been used as currency for more than 5,000 years. 75% of the world's mined gold is used to make jewelry. Gold is extremely rare, requiring several tons of ore to produce just one ounce of gold. It's the metal of choice to pass on from generation to generation. It's something the world considers valuable, and their greed for gold drives them. They kill for it, like Pizarro. Gold is one of the most durable substances in the world, and it seems to last forever. And since it's a natural element on the periodic table, it doesn't stop being gold, but it can be melted. And the point of this interesting historical fact is that Peter uses gold to teach us something important. There are two things compared with gold in these verses. The first is the genuineness of our faith, and the other is the price of our redemption. Let's look at the first one, the genuineness of our faith. In 1 Peter 1, 3-7 it says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. And this inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you all greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor 
when Jesus Christ is revealed. So Peter says we're rejoicing over the fact that we have in heaven an inheritance that can never spoil or fade away and that it's kept or reserved in heaven for us. He says even as we're rejoicing for a little while, and that's really what our lives are compared to eternity, we suffer grief by various trials. And I like that he uses the word grief because it does cause us grief, doesn't it? And we grieve what we've lost. When gold is mined from the earth, it has many impurities mixed in with it. So the process of getting rid of the impurities, called dross, is to superheat it. The true gold is heavy and stays at the bottom of the crucible, while the dross floats to the top and is scraped off by the metal worker. They repeat the process many times until you have the purest gold you can get. When refining silver, he heats it up, then scoops away the dross which rises to the surface. He keeps peering into it until he can see his reflection in the silver. Then he knows it is pure. Likewise, God refines us in the fire of affliction, removing our sins until he sees his image reflected in us. So like gold is proven to be true gold in the fire, our faith is proven to be genuine through the fires of our trials. And like the testing of gold, we will go through various kinds of repetitive trials. What scares me is that not only can we be deceived into believing wrong things about God, but we are also capable of self-deception. When you read Matthew 7, 21-23, it's shocking because these are religious people who thought they were okay in going to heaven. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Don't you want to know that you're not deceived? I do. Elsewhere, Paul says, examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. And one way we know is to have our faith hold up in our trials. And let's look at the second comparison, the price of our redemption. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. So Peter tells us we were not ransomed or redeemed by silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. But the comparison is between corruptible things like gold or silver and something of infinite value, the blood of Christ. When scripture speaks of blood, there are two things in mind. First, the blood itself, to remind them of the blood of the sacrificial lamb sprinkled once a year on the mercy seat. The other is the idea that the word blood reminds us of Jesus' death and all that was involved in his crucifixion. His broken body, the crown of thorns, the mocking, the spitting, it's a metonym or part for the whole, like the idea of saying someone has a nice set of wheels. They are talking about a car. And the image here is of a perfect, unblemished lamb sacrificed in place of the guilty sinner, the blood poured on the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant once a year on the Day of Atonement. 
all the repeated individual sacrifices point forward to the yearly sacrifice, and the yearly sacrifice pointed to the one Lamb of God who would be sacrificed to take away sin permanently. Because Jesus was sinless, he was the perfect Lamb. So how can someone's blood cover the sins of all the sins of all the people of God? And the answer lies in the value of the one whose blood was spilled. God literally paid a king's ransom for our souls, his own son. Another aspect of gold is worth mentioning. Revelation 21.21 tells us, The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was of gold, as pure as transparent glass. And when you picture gold, what do you imagine? Yellow gold? Maybe white gold? Do you see a problem here? The verse says the gold is like transparent glass. Back in Bible times, there was no way they could have heated gold and changed it to a state that would make it clear. But gold in its purest form is clear. Astronauts use a layer of gold covering their helmets so the sun won't destroy their eyes in space. Gold is the only thing they can use that is clear. Also, the Royal Bank Tower in downtown Toronto has a covering of real gold on their windows. And this is yet another proof that the Bible is trustworthy. The Book of Job is literature. As a writer, I find it interesting to analyze different books from that point of view. Job is a part of scripture, so it is inspired by God. It is poetry and prose and is part of the section known as wisdom literature. But when an author writes a novel, many things need to be included. I'll list them and explain them. The first is a protagonist or main character. Here it is Job. Then we have supporting characters who are his wife and friends, although in this case uh, we see that name doesn't suit them at all. Then we have a villain, someone who is the opposite of the hero, God, and who is an enemy of the protagonist. That would be Satan who maliciously sets out to destroy Job's faith. He approaches God twice to ask permission to inflict Job. And every story needs an inciting incident, something that happens to set the events in motion and cause the character to have a crisis. This would be all of Job's losses recorded in chapters 1 and 2. Then we have a dark moment, when all seems lost. This could be chapter 3, when Job curses the day of his birth, or even when he finally stops talking because there is nothing more to say. Some could say his comforters and wife are villains too, but they are more of a complicating factor. They should be there to support him, but instead they add to his suffering by abandonment and ridicule. They attack his character and set out to destroy his reputation. And every character in a story needs to have a character arc. That means they need to have a trajectory of change from the beginning of the story to the end. We see Job is consistent in his holy living, but the difference is that at the end he is humbled and sees God in a whole new way. His friends are also humbled and must admit their advice to Job was wrong. And even his wife, who is only mentioned indirectly as the mother of ten more children, had to have been impacted by all that she lost as well as watching Job's response. And the climax of the story is when God speaks directly to Job. Finally, we have the hero of the story, 
God, who has been in control the whole time and who reveals his majesty in the final few chapters. He silences Job and the reader, who may have secretly been questioning his ways as well. He swoops in to save the day. Job is restored, but only after he repents. His assets double and he again has a new large family. Job's friends are restored, but on God's terms, sacrifice and prayer. Then the epilogue wraps it up, showing the story continuing into the fourth generation of Job's children. And while we don't see Satan sulking and licking his wounds, we know he has been soundly beaten. He doesn't want to talk about it. It is a story within a greater story or meta-narrative of the Bible. And what do we learn about God from this book? God is sovereign and owes no explanation for his actions. His permissive will at the beginning of the book reminds us that everything in his universe, including Satan, are under his control and cannot act without his authorization. It is good for us to frequently read God's response to Job to remind us that he is our judge, we are not his, and we answer to him, he doesn't answer to us. And if we have a problem with this, it only proves the fact that we are sinful rebels. This is the God who has shown terrifying judgments on unbelievers for sin and rebellion, the global flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, conquest uh, of Israel um, by other more ruthless nations like Babylon or Assyria, and also terrifying judgments on his own people for their disobedience, exile, destruction of the temple twice, oppression by foreign powers many times. And yet, this is the same God who acted with patience toward them time and time again. We see that in the book of Judges. And finally, because of his great love, he sent his own son into the world to die at their hands and in their place. He alone is worthy of fear, awe, worship, and love. So when God asks Job his 70 rhetorical questions, it is to humble Job. It works. Job sees he is wholly unqualified to question God or to presume to be able to run the universe better than he does. Job lost everything but his faith. This God can be trusted because he is faithful. When we suffer, we are tempted to ask why, but as Job learned, that is the wrong question. Once we understand who God is, it changes our perspective on suffering and allows us to endure it. Why do we trust any person? Because our confidence is based on their character. And this book is ultimately about God's character. The more we see who he is, the better we'll understand our place in his universe and our duty to submit to the one who is just, wise, and powerful beyond our understanding. His goal in all he does is his glory and our good, and our response is to trust and obey. You've been listening to the podcast Bible Companion series by author P.H. Thompson. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and comment. Continue listening for Genesis chapter 12. May God bless the study of his word.